If you had a tool, any kind of tool, but in this case, data science, but it could be anything that improved your decision quality by half a percent every day for 365 days, you'd be looking at a roughly 2,000% improvement annualized. We said to ourselves, having really done it, we felt like that as business leaders, we knew more about what had to happen next than perhaps very many people anywhere. I'm Mark Stoos, the CEO of Proof Analytics. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Mark Stoos built the platform to attribute revenue and provide the analytics to really move the needle. All this and more on Code Story. Mark Stoos was a CCO and CMO in large companies like Honeywell Airspace. He claims that he is not a data scientist, but can play one on TV and can speak to the needs of a data scientist. If he wasn't pursuing his current venture, he would likely be a history professor, as he is seriously passionate about 15th century innovation in the pre-Renaissance era. He's also a parent of two teenage boys, so outside of tech and history, he spends time doing what they want to do. As a communications and marketing leader, Mark was frustrated with the lack of recognition for his marketing teams to the bottom line. In addition, he solved major analytics problems at his prior companies, but had massive budgets to do so. He saw that software and automation was the way forward. This is the creation story of Proof Analytics. How well you leverage analytics into daily decision-making to make even slightly better decisions day in and day out is what it's all about. The problem has been historically that data science has been very slow, very complicated, very expensive, and very difficult for so-called normal people, meaning not people who are not trained data scientists, to understand it. For all of the talk about it for quite a long time, this is why you haven't seen a lot of data science actually being used operationally on a regular day-in and day-out basis to make better decisions. If you had a tool, any kind of tool, but in this case data science, but it could be anything, that improved your decision quality by half a percent every day for 365 days, you'd be looking at a roughly 2,000% improvement annualized. We said to ourselves, having really done it, we, we felt like that as business leaders, we knew more about what had to happen next than perhaps very many people anywhere. You know, I was really frustrated as a communications and marketing leader by the lack of respect that the teams were getting for their business contribution. But I acknowledge the fact that, you know, we were pretty much nowhere in terms of being able to prove it. And I was I was kind of in a you know, quest for personal significance, I guess would be one way to put it. 
I discovered, you know, analytics, particularly, you know, at that time, multivariable regression. I'm not a data scientist, so that that's a that's probably really important to say. But, you know, over the ensuing two decades or so, I have I can certainly play one on TV. I have kind of a Medici relationship with guys like that, women like that, you know, that can do that kind of work really, really well. You didn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that automation and 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 the economies of software and AI to a relevant degree was the way forward on this. That's why we built Proof. So what we what we ultimately found, right? And this is the this is the voyage of discovery that that is part of innovation. Is that when we started strapping automatic data flows onto proof, the model started behaving exactly like a GPS on your phone. So what happens on your phone, right? Is it says, this is where you are. And you say, well, this is where I want to go. And it plots a course, right? It gives you a route to get there. This is really ultimately the business question, whether it's about marketing or anything else, is what do I need to change and when do I need to change it in the light of all these other changes that I don't control? I mean, that is the essence of it. It's a navigation problem. And so you're cruising along you're on your route to value and all of a sudden, the economy changes or other things change or a competitor does something really big or whatever. And you start to see a delta start to develop between the forecasted piece and reality. Well, tell me about the MVP. So that first version of the product, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? And I'm curious about like decisions and trade-offs on how you started to build it too. There's really two different parts to proof. One is written for analysts and one is written for everyone else. And the two have to sync, right? They, they have to operate as one, and yet they also have to be completely different. An analyst is gonna have a different UX than your average CMO. And yet again, they have to sync, they have to come together. I have often analogized our development program in the in the first three years to boring a tunnel from both sides of the mountain, needing to come together in the middle of the mountain with very little deviation. Because at the end of the day, you can't just say, in our case anyway, you can't just say, well, we are going to prioritize the business user UX and we're going to work back from there because there's actually two equally important UXs. You know, one of the one of the more interesting pieces of research that I came into possession of is that it, it showed that a huge plurality of business teams, but when you show them a graph, they just completely shut down. These are not stupid people, obviously, right? They do a lot of great stuff all day, every day, but there is something about a graph that psychologically just psychs them out. They can't tell you what the graph is all about, not not without a lot of help. We were like, whoa, okay, so you know that's that's kind of interesting. So we had to, we had to kind of pick up 
a completely different approach. And it was right about that time when we had some of our earliest customers hook up high frequency data flows to proof. And that's when we started seeing kind of that GPS effect. And so that's when we started to explore the GPS metaphor as a, as a UX approach. Okay, so from that point then, you're starting to pursue the GPS, you know, UX aspect, right? Um, and you have something that is working well. H- how did you progress the product and, and mature it? And I'm, I'm curious how you build your roadmap and how you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. Well, you keep on learning. One of the, one of the great temptations, you know, because in the very beginning, you don't have a lot of anything, including customers. And the, and the real value of the customer at that particular moment is the, is the feedback. What we never did ever was essentially customize the product around a particular customer's needs and, and kind of allow one customer to pull us off course. I think also, you know, we, we kind of approach this whole thing in terms of the scientific method of inquiry, which in the case of analytics means you start with the business question and you just reverse engineer all the way through the scientific method down to the data. The data is literally the last thing that's specified because it hinges upon everything else. In this case, what we did was is our first product, uh, first version of the product, uh, the data flows were flat file upload only. And it was designed where anyone could operate it under any circumstances, and they could create a model and they could explore a model and they could get to value on that model really fast. And then if they wanted to scale it, Whatever that means, right, that's going to require uh, a pretty robust supply chain behind it to drive it. And that's, and that's where APIs come into play. And so we, uh, we did the APIs last for that reason. We also had a feeling that, or it was more than a feeling, we had a sense that what we would have had to have done in that regard in, say, 2016, 2017, which would be custom API connectors, would be a category unto itself. And so we're just going to buy a subscription and hook it up, and that's going to be the thing. I think that maybe one of the biggest lessons we have learned, continue to learn, is what to develop ourselves natively and what to integrate. That's a a great question as you're building out software and a challenging one. The engineer in me, it challenges that. It challenges me on, on a regular basis, so I, I can understand that. Tell me about how you built your team and, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? I think that initially, you know, I, I came out of software. I knew a lot of people. The original team was pretty much all people that we, I mean, we'd worked together, known each other for a long time. So there was not only a prioritization of competence and and ability, but trust. It was almost an unstated prerequisite that initially you you had to be able to do this for equity only. And, And so that meant that we had a pretty senior team who had already done well in their respective careers, 
saw this as an opportunity to do something really cool and to be a part of it and to own a part of it and all that kind of stuff. As you as you move forward, though, your needs as a company change. You know, like initially, the entire team really was a product team. We were very fortunate. We had some family offices behind us, still do have them. And so we had the runway to do the development right. We actually were in business, unquote, you know, quote unquote, for almost four years before we really launched but we had to we had to get it right and so that that was really really super important so we were 100% virtual from day one so COVID had effectively no impact on us at all in that respect and we are a team of contractors so there are no employees of proof it pretty much eliminates an entire layer of administration that can be very expensive but also it gives us you know the flexibility in terms of the team makeup that we need at a particular time in a particular place. You know, and it's worked really, really well. I mean, in general, we pay, you know, above market. There's no feeling that somehow this isn't, you know, the, the way it should be. I think everybody's very happy. Let's talk about scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow? So I think that we definitely built the software to scale from day one. The limits on scalability of the current data science approaches are one of the major limitations that data science presents to the business every day. Scalability of modeling, of collaboration, you know, the ability to use Slack inside the tool to share data and to collaborate on analytics all while using essentially a form of blockchain to ensure uh, data rights management. And all of that now is aligned with, or you know, it can be configured by the customer to align with whatever the legal contracts are between the parties. So this all goes to scalability. The price, the pricing structure that we have on it goes to scalability. It's $49 a month per seat. You know, you can't touch similar capability or even a lot more capability uh, for that price. A lot of pe- a lot of companies start out month to month, right, uh, with an auto pay on a credit card until they decide that, yeah, this is everything that they said it was. And then they when they you know come up for renewal, they they or at some point, maybe even sooner than that, they say, hey, you know, let's uh, let's do you know, a year we do, we do do discounts for multiple year. So that happens a lot too. So scalability is a big part uh, of the product. The team, you know, it really has never mattered to us where a person was located. And that allowed us to scale the team because there were actually some people not only lived in very obscure places, but, you know, uh, one guy is paralyzed from the waist down and can't really go too many places at all but boy i mean he's just a phenomenally brilliant data scientist a lot of companies that situation wouldn't work for them works for us great so we scale the team in that way also because everyone's a contractor it allows us to 
bring people on, you know, more freely. You know, we start them off with, you know, a very targeted project. Again, we pay them handsomely for that project. And if everybody wants to continue working with them, uh, if they do a great job, if they really produce, then they get another contract and, uh, you know, it just keeps on going. Well, Marcus, you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built. What are you most proud of? Oh, man, I would say uh, surviving. Entrepreneurialism is, it's sort of like wealth or power. There's an old saying, you know, that basically says if you want to know who a person really is, give them a lot of money and a lot of power and you will find out. The same thing is true about being an entrepreneur. You will learn so much about yourself and other people will learn a lot about you too. Now, this is kind of a generational reference because I, I, I haven't seen these in quite some time. But when I was when I was growing up, and I you know right before I went to the dentist, my brother and I, my mom gave us these red tablets to chew up. The dye would stick, and so you, you know those areas would kind of turn pink. But being an entrepreneur is a lot the same. So I'm most proud of where we are right now because we have already defied the odds. I mean, we're we're part of that one-tenth of one percent. Not because we've exited or something like that, but because we're alive and growing. Well, let's flip the script a little bit, Mark. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. My biggest mistakes are always around uh, people hiring and firing people. And I think that being in large corporations, right, you're kind of encouraged to be this way and you don't even really realize it, you know, but you tend to give people a lot of, of additional chances. You tend to say to yourself, wow, this, this person really has, there's so many good things and we're just going to keep, keep working with them on these not so good things. You, you kind of let it ride a lot long, or I have in the past let it ride a, a lot longer than I should have. I, I would say that that's 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 where I've really had to become more balanced in my perspective. So I think that you know, and that is in some cases that has had you know that's created near death experiences for proof. We talk a lot uh, as an industry about people, process, technology. Right, but this is not an equilateral triangle that we're describing here. It's a scaling triangle, and the longest pole is always the people, and that's the, that's the good side. That's that that you know we say it's the long pole because it's the genius of people and the and the power of people, and it's all the good stuff. When you look at situations around failure, mistake, it's hardly ever software and process that, that deliver those things. And so, you know, those are the mistakes that are tattooed on my brain. Well, last question, Mark. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Entrepreneurs, particularly if the young entrepreneur is also a marketer or a sales guy. They typically really undervalue great legal. I just feel really blessed about it, to be perfectly honest. We have always had great legal representation and great legal agreements. 
not only have they been really kind of like high moral, high ethical agreements, right? For example, if we are claiming a particular kind of right, we also extend it to the other parties as well. So agreement shouldn't be uh, a way to engineer an unintended advantage. And yet it has to be very protective. It has to, there's a lot of things that it has to accomplish. Even though, you know, really good starting set of agreements, customer agreements, partner agreements, all that kind of stuff, probably will set you back somewhere between 50 and 100K. It is so cheap at price. You're not buying that stuff. You're buying insurance against the evil day. And the first time that you really experience that, you will go, whoa, man, I'm, that's just awesome. I would just say that that's really super important. The other thing I would tell a, a, a young entrepreneur is to realize that, just like I said earlier about, you know, you give people money, you find out who they really are. This journey that they're on is, they're gonna learn a lot about the people that they know. And I would also just say that, you know, as soon as you start bringing money into situations, you're gonna, you're gonna go through some pain. You just are, you know, it might be with co-founders. It might be with uh, investors, but you're going to go through some pain and you just have to be willing to go through the pain. You know, one, uh, like with fundraising, one of the things that I've always adopted is I said, look, this is why we're doing this. This is the upside in general terms. This is why this is so important. But I don't want you to invest anything into this company that A, you can't afford to lose, but an even higher standard than that is that if you lose it for any reason, you and I can still have dinner together. And I really mean it. And, and I have been known to turn down investment. The slogan that I live by and what I tell everybody around me is, I care whether it's legal, moral, ethical, and that it works. You've got to be pragmatic, but you can't just be totally pragmatic. You, you've, you've also really got to care about what's right and what's wrong. No, that's great advice. All of that is great advice. Well, Mark, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling your creation story of Proof Analytics. Thanks so much. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. 
From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.